Good morning. We're going to continue our sermon series this morning by looking at the first part of the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to look, you see in your order of worship, at the second part of uh, chapter 2. Uh, but before we read that together, I want to start by mentioning that uh, in Greek mythology, I'm going to give an image of one of the, the stories of mythology. There was a person, or I guess I should say a god, a god named Moma, Momus, I think that's how you pronounce it, Momus. Maybe you've never heard of him. I ha- he's not that familiar, not that well-known, I don't think. But he was the god of things like satire, mockery, and criticism. He was the son of night and darkness. And one of the things that he was known for was after humankind was made, that Momus criticized how it was put together, how humans were made, saying that we should have been made with a door on our chests, that you could open the door and see into our hearts. That way there wouldn't be any more lying or dishonesty or hiding. Well, the gods of Olympus did not like his ideas, and he eventually got kicked out of the Mount Olympus, mostly because he kept criticizing Zeus, telling Zeus that he was always too angry and too violent and too lusting. Eventually, Momus was sent in exile. But what an idea, right? The idea of humans having some kind of door on their chests that allow those around us to see what's happening within us. If we can picture that image, an image that mythology raises but eventually casts aside, it's an image that is part of 1 Samuel, the theme of our sermon series and the theme of that book in many ways that, that God sees differently than us that we only see appearance, but that God sees our hearts. That while we might long or we might shudder at the idea of one seeing into us, the truth is that God is described in that way, the one who can see into the depths of our hearts, into our longings, into our joys, into our grief and sorrows, into our sin, into our joys. And as part of us reflecting on that theme, this idea of God seeing our hearts and us encountering God there, we've been looking at the stories of different people in 1 Samuel. We looked at Hannah, and this morning we'll look at Eli and his sons, and eventually we'll look at Samuel and the people of Israel and their neighbors, the Philistines. In the last couple of Sundays, if you were here, as I mentioned, we were looking at <clears throat> Hannah and her experience. Hannah was barren. She longed for a child, more than longing for a child, or in addition to that, I should say, she was also struggling with how people were treating her in her longing, mocking her or not taking seriously this longing for God to bless her with a child. When God's goodness, he gives a child to Hannah and her husband, and she gives birth to a son and names him Samuel, which means God has heard. God has heard. And she praises God for this gift. And last couple Sundays, we looked at that hymn of joy, that prayer of praise that Hannah offered, that she praises God for this gift. But interestingly, along with praising God, she also acknowledges and seeks the reversal concerning the arrogant and the wicked, the self-sufficient, the mighty, those who don't have any problems. And interestingly, right after that prayer, the next few verses, the next section We encounter the arrogant, and we encounter the proud and the wicked. But guess what? This is important to see. 
Those examples of pride and of wickedness are not those outside, not the evil Philistines that we'll encounter later, but they are the priests of Israel. The very priests at the temple of God are the arrogant and the wicked, more interested in their mightiness than in the weakness of the people around them. We know what this can be like as people of faith. We have to be careful not to be Christians who are quick to criticize culture or quick to criticize those who don't believe, while at the same time ignoring the faults and brokenness within us. Here we have an example in our passage of those called to be a light to the world, but who are spreading darkness. Our passage is a story really of a father and two sons, Eli and his sons Hopni and Phineas. Eli is the head priest and his sons are priests as well. But as we'll see, they are not known for holiness, they're not known for love, they are known for gluttony and the selfish use of power. So let's look at this account of Eli and his sons. It's in your order of worship. You can follow there or in your Bible. This is 1 Samuel 2, verse 11 through 26. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now Eli's sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest was the people with the people was that they went sorry sorry <clears throat> with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there moreover before the fat was burned the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, or if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a, for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Akana and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the temple of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Well, there's a lot in our passage, you might have noticed. There's a lot going on. And what I want us to do this morning is have three parts to our 
Sermon 1, I want to look at the narrative, the, the story, and see what is actually happening here. Then I want us to look at how our passage speaks of longing, longing for things to be different, and how it speaks of hope, hope in God's actions. So let's start with just the story of seeing what is happening. Before Solomon built a permanent temple in Jerusalem, the portable tabernacle was located in Shiloh, a city north of Jerusalem, and Eli was the high priest of Shiloh. In order to understand kind of where we are in the context, it's helpful to know that not only did Hannah give birth to Samuel, this gift from God, but as part of her prayers that she had promised to God that if she conceived of a son that he would be given to God, that soon as he was old enough that he would serve the Lord in the temple all his days. And so we see our passage begins with an acknowledgement that Samuel is in the temple ministering with Eli the priest. But right after acknowledging that, the passage turns and speaks about Eli and his sons. And you see how they are described in our passage. They are worthless men. Those are significant words, and we should recognize that Scripture over and over again upholds the value and dignity of humans, even in their evilness. But Scripture also here is pointing to the reality of human sin and evil, especially ones who are called to represent God to others. They are priests, but they do not know the Lord. They are referred to as sons of Belial, which is a form of derision in the Israel in the Scriptures, meaning basically sons of wickedness or men of worthlessness. They are not fulfilling or representing what they were called to be. I don't know how you survived the last few days or the days of cold earlier this week, but one of the things that came out of in the newspapers or in photos, you saw many people who went out into the cold, right, with different scarves and only seeing their eyes, frost all over their faces or their hats. But one of the pictures that I like the best was, was listed as one of the photos of the week, and it was by a family in Minnesota. And in front of their house, in the snow, there was five pairs of frozen jeans standing up as like a family photo. <laughs> they weren't in them, they're empty jeans, but they were frozen solid standing up in the snow. So if you can picture them, you know, of different sizes, the father and the mother, then the three children, they're kind of, you know, as if they were invisible in their clothes. If you could picture something like that, that family photo, you know, you could say, oh, here's the family, here's, here's a picture of this family from Minnesota. And you could say, yes, you know, it does evoke them, it is a type of, you know, artsy family photo, right? <laughs> but it isn't them, it's just empty jeans, frozen by the vortex. And something similar is going on here as we're introduced to Eli's sons. Because here are some priests. Yes, they are in the temple. Yes, they're wearing priestly clothes. Yes, they have the right titles. But they are not acting like priests. They're empty. Just like those genes were just empty and maybe representing something. These men are empty in their roles as well. And if integrity is the idea of willing one thing, of your wholeness of your body coming together in one thing. Here's an example of those who are divided. Set as priests, but do not know God or do not represent Him. Are empty. 
One author reflecting on this writes, religion without faith is the worst form of life. Religion without faith is the worst form of life. I don't know for sure that's completely true, but I think it gets at this idea that maybe we've experienced ourselves, that something that was meant for beauty and meant for freedom, our faith, Christ, something that made to make us more human, to make us honor God and honor our neighbors. It's possible when it's removed from God, when it's just a human religion, that it is simply another expression of human brokenness. Just one more vehicle of selfishness or perversion, just one more source of burden about the things you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. That is not what God intended for these two men and not what He intends for us. Just an empty burden. These men are serving as religious leaders, sons of the high priest, but they do not know God and there is no cover-up in the Scriptures. It is direct about what's happening here and the, the toxic culture of the temple. And we're told in particular of two dishonorable practices, sexual immorality and what we might call religious extortion. Eli's sons are sleeping with the women who serve in the temple And when people come to visit with sacrifices, Hopni and Phinehas are taking by intimidation or force the best portions for themselves rather than allow the visitors to make sacrifice to God. In order for us to understand what's happening here, why this is significant, I'm sure you noticed in our passage a good amount of detail about what was happening in the temple, trying to give us an understanding of the priestly role and what was going on. You see, according to the law of Moses, Concerning the meat of a sacrifice, the fat was not to be eaten, but was to be presented and burned to the Lord as his portion. So when people came to make a sacrifice at the temple, first the fat portion was offered and burned to the Lord, and then certain parts, usually the thigh and the breast, were offered to the priests as their food. This was the protocol, but Eli's sons are not satisfied with this designated portion or the order of things, so they decide to do things differently. Did you notice? First, we hear about the priest's servants using a fork to go out and actually fish out meat from people who are preparing their sacrifices. Rather than waiting for the portion that was assigned to them, they go and they take as much meat as they can. But that's not enough. So they go on, and second, they decide to start taking the meat even before it's cooked. Even before you can make an offering, let us take the parts that we want for ourselves. So we can imagine the worshipers showing up at the temple, saying, let me burn the fat for the Lord. Let me come to worship God. We know what he's expected of us to make this offering. Let us do it. But the priests, those who are supposed to enable this sacrifice, to meet God's people as God's representative, are saying no. No, unless you give us the portions of meat and the amount that we want, we will use force to take it. What a strange concept of religious extortion. Using their power to get what they want. Two men who are deliberately going against the law, helping themselves instead of helping the people, treating people as insignificant, treating God's offering as insignificant. Something that they are to take rather than to offer to God. And it's for this reason that it's summarized in our passage that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. In addition to this religious extortion, there is a moral offense as well that Hopni and Phineas are sleeping with women who serve in the temple. 
one of the problems that was going on around the neighboring people around Israel, that pagan worship often connected worship ceremonies with what's called temple prostitution. So prostitution, sexual immorality was connected to the temple worship in pagan settings. Such settings invite those who come to use other humans as objects of pleasure. And God is clear throughout his history with Israel that his ways are to be different. To worship the Lord is not centered around using another person for our pleasure, but the worship of the Lord is to move us to see our neighbors in new ways. To love and to serve and to honor. The priests are abusing their power in order to take advantage of others in the temple. And you don't need me to say that sadly thousands of years later, it isn't hard for us to imagine those in power using their position to mistreat others, to use others for sexual pleasure. And here it is in the temple of God, the place set apart for the worship of God. When Eli hears what's going on, he rebukes his sons. You make the Lord's people transgress. In their role, these two leaders are called to shepherd God's people, but rather they are misleading and hurting God's people. They were to be set apart as holy representatives of God. But do you see that their conduct has simply turned the temple into a place just like the marketplace? Where I get what I can. Their actions have turned the temple, a place that was supposed to be a place of honor, into a place like pagan sites where prostitution is part of the worship. We're invited into the story so that we would understand what's happening. And even though we're removed by many, many, many years, we're invited, you and I, to hear this and to try to imagine it, that we would feel the longing and this anger of the people. You see, 1 Samuel has told us about Hannah, that she was longing for a child, but we see here that she is not the only one who was longing for things to be different. She was longing for a child and she was struggling with the mistreatment of those around her and it brought her to grief and to shame and to anger, the sense that there was no future or no hope. That was Hannah's experience. But here in Eli and his sons were invited to feel the anger of corruption, the selfish and arrogant power. Again, there is no hope. The very place that we're supposed to go and worship God has become twisted hurting and using and not helping those who visit. Of course, our setting is different culturally, but I don't think it's that hard for us, especially in the cynical world that we live in, right? To be familiar with the failure of religious places and religious leaders. Even maybe moving us or others to ask, what is the point? What is the point of church? What is the point of access to God is blocked by sinful people? Even making us wonder, is religion just an expression of human power and human manipulation? It's in the midst of these type of questions and this longing and the anger of the people that we're reminded about this story. It's also about a father and two sons. It's also a story of sorrow and wishing things were different 
and your family. The theme of family, of parent and child is brought forth in our passage. It might not be obvious right away, but there are parallel accounts about Hannah's care for Samuel and Eli's relationship with his two sons. Do you see how our passage goes back and forth? There's a parallel in the contrast. There is a mother's love expressed in her visits to Samuel and giving him a little robe each time to care for him, contrasted with a father's sorrow over his children. Eli's blessing of Hannah and her husband set in contrast with Eli's rebuke of his own sons. The Lord's provision that he will give a children to Hannah and her family against the Lord's announcement that Eli's sons will die. And both accounts of the family end with the mention of Samuel growing. A father and two sons. Eli's children have become a source of pain, sorrow, and anger, and shame for him and for others. Your sons are worthless men. We have to stop and think of the sorrow and the shame in those words. Your sons are worthless men. Makes me think again of Momus, that Greek god I mentioned in the beginning. The idea of doors in our chests. If we had such a door, right, if it was opened up, think with me how much of what we would see, how much of what's going on inside of us has to do with our family, maybe how we relate to our parents how our parents have influenced or affected us. Or if we have children, our concern for our children and their well-being and what they are like or what they are experiencing. Eli kept hearing about his sons and he asks them, why do you do such things? Now, as I was looking at this passage, I came across no shortage of sermons about parenting and Eli's failures. Sermons on parenting make me nervous. <laughs> I feel like most of the time it's people that tells you more about the person speaking than it does about the scriptures. Um, and I think our passage is more about hope, about God's willingness to inter- be involved even in the midst of human frailty, not God, God not allowing human sin or corruption to stop his ways. But it is worth us reflecting on Eli's experience. Eli's story and his sorrow reminds us that parents have a sacred duty from God to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for the physical and spiritual needs of their children, to teach them to love and to serve, to obey God's commandments, and to invite them not merely to religion, not merely to rules, but to embrace Jesus the one who was offered as forgiveness and grace, a place of rest for them. And it's possible for us to neglect such a calling. We're all busy with many things in our lives, and if we're honest, parenting is difficult. It requires perseverance. It can be discouraging. It's also possible to go in the other direction, not just to neglect, but a different direction. If we go later into 1 Samuel, one of the critiques, the only critique I could find of Eli and his parenting 
was that God said he honored his sons above God. He honored his sons above the Lord. Now, it's not always clear what that means, but I think it means that he esteemed or ordered his life around his children and their desires rather than seeking to set his life or theirs around God and his ways. We can think about with our, our family life or with our children, how do we view our possessions? How are we teaching our children to view their money or time or relationships? Because we see in Hopney and Phineas that they saw other people. They saw their schedules. They saw their power. They saw even the temple of God as secondary to what they wanted. As part of parenting, let us not neglect our roles, but let us also invite our children and ourselves, starting with ourselves, to order our lives around God. And let Him teach us about our time, our money, and how to treat other people. And while affirming this call of parenting, we should not assume that parents are culpable for the poor conduct of their children, especially when they are adults. For Eli asked his sons, why do you do such things? And Hopney and Phineas did not hear their father's rebuke, but closed their ears to him. What's in these difficult circumstances, in this longing of a people and of a father, that we come into our passage to see about hope. It's time for us to hear hope, right? There is something more going on here than corruption and brokenness. First Samuel, in many ways, is a book about hope. Even in barrenness, God creates a future. Even in the face of human sin and forgetfulness, God remains faithful to his promise. And even in the face of corruption and selfish priests and a broken temple, the Lord redeems and forms a people. See, for us to call upon the Lord is to call upon one who creates a future when there is none, who creates life in the midst of emptiness, who creates possibility and redemption where there is none. You see that forgiveness and life rests not in, in you and me, but it rests in God bringing such things to us. In this text here, it whispers consistently, don't forget Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. The opening, the middle, and the closing of our passage speak of Samuel, his gift, his growth, his ministry, And these all are careful comments to tell us that there is something more going on than human sin, more going on than corrupt priests. Here is a gift from God. Here is a promise of hope in the midst of difficulty. And we can think and picture little Samuel in the temple and we are reminded that not all of God's work is noisy and dramatic. Not all of God's reversals catch attention. And in the midst of that, we may be tempted to think that we are on our own, that all there is is our efforts, or all there is is our misguided seeds that we're planting, or all there is is the corruption and brokenness of leaders. Our passage invites us to feel what it would be if that was all there is. The barrenness of Hannah, her grief and longing, the sorrow of Eli, longing for his sons to be different, and wondering about his role in their life even feeling the anger of people who come to the temple trying to worship God but are being blocked in doing so. Is there hope? Is there a future? And Samuel said against these priests affirms that there is something more. 
that our God can bring blessing out of impossible circumstances. God can bring life in, out of human powerlessness. This is the way of our God. One author describes the mention of Samuel in our passage as a silent witness, the silent reminder of God's presence. And of course, Samuel is a picture of hope, but he points beyond himself, points beyond to the one who will come. If we wonder about hope or about our brokenness or the brokenness around us, we can remember the promise of God that God himself has come, that God himself will raise up a true priest, that God himself, the light of the world, will enter the darkness. Eli warns his sons, if you sin against man, you can work out a mediation. But if you sin against the Lord, who can intercede? Who can intercede? Is there anything more than what we can bring to the table? And it's in that question and that ache that we might feel. We can remember how the church is described. Samuel, the priest, points to a high priest that is coming. In the New Testament, the church is described as those Jesus obtained with his own blood. He described you and me as those Jesus has purchased by his blood. In Jesus, we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, a high priest who knows our weaknesses, and therefore we can cry out to him. In our longings, but also in the brokenness in us and around us, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence that God sees you and knows you, and that he offers grace in our times of need. This is the hope that we have. That why might, some might pretend that all there is is their power, that religion is empty, that there is a God who has acted for you. The person of Jesus coming in flesh and bearing your sin and your death and your sorrow in his blood. This is our hope now and forever. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you, Lord, that you are good. We pray, Lord, that you would meet us as we think of our sorrows and our longings, things that are broken in us or around us, the things we wish were different. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak hope to us, that you'd be present by your grace to encourage us, to change us, and to help us persevere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.